Biblical worldview is how a Christian can see the world, the people in it, and themselves. Often Christians try looking at the world through every Bible verse they know, law, gospel, and everything in between. And not only is it hard to see each other through so many details, but it leaves us paralyzed to make quick decisions, and few of us remember everything we know is true at any moment. In order to have a biblical worldview that is usable, it must be simple, memorable, and yet still true. It cannot be watered down. It must be the heart of all that's true. Welcome to Antikinosis, where we renew our minds towards biblical worldview and the scriptures. This is a show for anyone looking to build or repair their biblical worldview. Whether you are 100% comfortable in the current Christian culture, or you feel like an outsider looking in, everyone is brand new here and everyone is welcome. My name is Jeremy Agin. I'm just a guy with a Bible literacy background who has ASD and who thinks a lot about how to think. Today, we'll be asking the question, who does God say that he is? Let's renew. I've identified three key mind renewal questions that we need to consider when making any decision. If the gospel are statements of faith and the greatest commandments are the applications, then these three questions are the operating system. The first question is, who does God say he is? Now, lucky for us, God has made himself knowable. He desires to be known. He has made us for a unique relationship with him. God reveals himself through general and special revelations. General revelation is creation all around us and our conscience within us. Creation testifies to the handiwork of God and conscience testifies to the morality of God that is within us. And then there's special revelation, which is the scriptures and the historic encounters with God that are recorded within them. What makes knowing God tricky is we have readily available forgeries of the real God. You know who doesn't have authority to answer the question, who is God? Our culture, either secular or Christian culture. You have gods who are high on love and mercy, but have no holiness. You have gods who are high on holiness, but have no love. You have gods who are high on goodness, but low on power. You have gods who are high on power, but low on goodness. You have gods who want to bless you with riches. You have gods who want to break you with suffering. You have the bearded man in the clouds reaching his finger out towards Adam. You have Morgan Freeman in all white. We have Alanis Morissette in all white. When we buy into these caricatures of God, we buy into a caricature of everything associated with God. And all of this will cause doubt and distrust to be confused about our relationship with him. And to see evil in the world and wonder if he just isn't that good or he isn't that powerful. We also shouldn't be the ones answering the question who God is either. Because I will invent a God who is angry and mean when I feel great shame or failure. I don't get to define God. A major problem in American Christianity is Bible illiteracy. And one of the forms it takes is when we take our own definition of God and even theology, and press it into the scriptures, instead of letting scripture speak for itself. We become convinced the Bible is saying things it doesn't say, support things it doesn't support, and we begin to worship a God of our own design. 
As the body of Christ, the church reflects the God it worships. So, if the church's reputation is goodness, love, grace, equality, and justice, then we are worshiping the right God. When the church's reputation is judgment, anger, inequality, sexism, and injustice, these are reflections of the wrong God. The right question is, who does God say he is? God has revealed himself most clearly in the scriptures. He reveals snapshots of himself and his nature through all the scriptures and ultimately reveals himself in Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul wrote in Colossians that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Whatever question we have lingering about God are explained in Jesus. A risen Jesus told the disciples and their families in Luke 24 that everything that had happened during his time on earth, his death and resurrection were foretold in the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Those are the historical three parts of the Hebrew scriptures that we often call the Old Testament. Have you ever seen one of those pictures that's actually made up of tiny little pictures? This is how the scriptures paint a portrait of God. Hundreds of little stories that paint a full picture, the picture of God, reality, and humanity. Any Bible literacy scholar will tell you that Genesis gives you the wide-angle lens picture of who God or Jesus is, and then the rest of the Bible builds upon it. We're going to go back to the beginning. In Genesis 1 through 11, we have the origin story of God and humanity. In Genesis 12 to 50 is the story of Abraham, his family, and God. And then in Exodus 1 through 15 is the story of Israel and God. Key questions. How is the story of humanity linked to the relationship between Abraham and God? And how is the story of humanity linked to God's rescue of Israel from Egypt? Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Does the earth mean globe? No. To the original audience, earth simply meant the land beneath my feet. Heavens means what's above my head. And in the beginning is also an ambiguous term. We think of beginning as a point in time where nothing was before it, and then we have a sequence of events that follows. Ancient Hebrew has a word for that kind of beginning, but that's not the word that's used here. The word used here is reshith. It can mean a certain or the best time. So this verse doesn't really give the answer so many people turn to Genesis 1-1 looking for. It's not about when the earth was created. It's not about what was created. It's about who created it. Everything up there and everything down here is founded in him, yet it begins as a wasteland. Verse 2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Without form and void is a Hebrew word, tohu wabohu, which means wasteland. So there's no order. Humans can't live in this wasteland, and humans cannot flourish in this darkness. It continues, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The word for spirit is the word ruach. It can be used to mean breath or wind. So like when you're wearing your COVID-19 mask and you breathe and you can feel it through your mask, that's your ruach. And also, that mask needs to be replaced because it's not protecting you or anyone else. What is God going to do to set up a perfect place for us? Speak. This isn't lost on the author of John 1.1. 1, 1. 
when he wrote, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There is a connection here between God speaking and Jesus. God then brings order out of chaos. He's supreme over it all. He forms light and light sources. He separates the land from the sea. He fills them with all the creatures. He fills the air with creatures. He fills the land with vegetation. Then God said, let us make man, Adam, in our own image and in our own likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over the livestock and over all the earth and over all the creatures who move upon the ground. So he made them male and female, and he blessed them. He commanded them to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and rule it on his behalf. And we are so close to God in the beginning that we are his image and we are his representatives. Image is the same word for statue in Hebrew. We are his walking, talking action figures, image bearers. When the creatures of the earth look at humans, they see something that represents God And his original relationship with humans was that that delegates his authority. If God's will is going to happen on earth, God is willing and he chooses that his will will come through these creatures. God blesses them, says, be fruitful, have a blast. I've given you everything. In chapter two, we have a retelling of creation of the humans. And instead of talking about the image of God, he uses several images to get to the meaning of it. In 2.7, it says, Then the Lord formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. This uses imagery of a potter with clay. Now we can ask all the wrong questions and wonder if God used his hands to do this. How big are his hands in relation to the man? Can you really make the complex physiology of human life from dirt? Did Adam have a belly button? And we can go on and on and on. What we're supposed to see is the nature of human beings is earth and divine breath combined. They are on the border of heaven and earth. They are connected to the earth. They belong to the earth. But there is something connected to God as well. Humans are little images of God where heaven and earth intersect. What a unique relationship. In 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So in Genesis 1, God calls the humans to represent him and rule the earth. In Genesis 2, God calls the humans to work the ground with the stewardship of a good gardener. And this is all before sin. This is right relationship with God in the beginning. And it doesn't matter who you are or what time period or country you are from. This story is wrapping you up in its arms and saying you are God's. We live in a world that didn't have to exist. We're a people that didn't have to exist. But by the desire and love of God, we, we do exist. This is a major part of who God is. So what went wrong? We fast forward to the story of the tree and the serpent. And the humans were given this choice with the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Basically, the, the test is who are they going to trust? Verse 16, and the Lord God commanded man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So the provider of good this entire time has been God. As humans go about their work as God laid out for them, 
they are trusting God's definition of good and God's definition of evil. Here they have an opportunity to trust or distrust his definitions. They have the opportunity to define good and evil themselves, to seize something for themselves and call it good, to do what is right in their own eyes. This theme runs through scripture uh, and is at the root of biblical worldview. The humans at the prodding of the serpent, something that exists before them and wants to destroy them, they give into the deception. And the serpent says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So what is the deception here? The deception from the serpent is that they will be like God. They already are like God in every way that they could possibly dream of, but they are convinced God is still holding out on them. So they rebel. God banishes them from Eden, but offers them hope that will thread through the rest of the scriptures, the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent, but the serpent will bite his heel. It's not a lot, but it's a promise. Some child will be born that can defeat evil, but evil will take a bite out of him while doing so. So the image bearers foolishly rebel, setting off a chain reaction of rebellion, always centered around seizing something apart from God. Death is their consequence. Death is not their punishment. Who does God say he is? He creates, he orders, he blesses, he restores. Despite this, Adam and Eve trusted what was good in their own eyes and set off a chain reaction of rebellion. If you continue reading in Genesis, we have two brothers. One murders the other. Seizing power over life and death, deciding that killing another person is good. We have Lamech, who kills boys, collects wives, sings songs about it, seizing power over life and death. We have the people of earth so violent and wicked that they are washed off the earth. They're seizing power over life and death. And then Noah is rescued from this washing of creation. But then he gets drunk and has something vile happen in his tent while naked with a relative, seizing unnatural pleasures. So who's at fault here? Is it God? No. Is it the humans? Yes. And the same answer applies to all your problems. Who's at fault here? God? No. Humans? Always. Also, does Cain get killed for his murder or Lamech for his murders or Noah for his 10 activities? No, death is evil's weapon and God doesn't use it to defeat evil. If you want to hear more about that, one of the best people to handle this uh, complex situation of God and death and their relationship in the Old Testament is from Tim Mackey from the Bible Project. He handles it really well as he walks through the flood and uh, divine violence that happens in the scriptures. I know there's going to be disagreement on different things, but I think we can agree that we can trust a God who isn't going to use death as a weapon against us. Now, Noah's family repopulates the area. They are the new Adam, God's representatives in the earth to rule on its behalf, to be fruitful and multiply, to spread out and subdue it. But the cycle of rebellion begins again in every generation. The only reason that they aren't all washed off the earth again is because God made a promise not to do so, which is part of the tension 
in God's person, his justice versus his promises. But anyway, in Genesis 11, 1 through 3, it says, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. As the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. This is like new technology today. You know, they like they discover something. Look, we can make bricks. So we should build something tall. Verse four, then they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So humanity is seizing fame and glory and heaven for themselves apart from God. They feared being scattered all over the earth because remember, that's actually God's plan is for them to be scattered over the whole earth as his representatives. Humanity is here taking a stand saying no. Verses 5 and 6, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they have one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Now this isn't God biting his fingernails here in worry. He is seeing the harmful combination of dark hearts and unlimited and collaborative technology. I am not saying that God is threatened by technology, but he does dislike our rebellion. And technology makes us dream up new ways to choose what is right in our own eyes. And we've come up with some downright evil inventions. We all live in the bloodiest generation in the history of the world with our wonderful inventions of death and humans clinging to them to death. Verses 7 and 8, Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. So this is an act of judgment, but it's also an act of mercy because he is saving them from themselves. And no one dies here. Everyone is saved. We have a good picture of God. We have a good picture of humans. And we're taking everything good that we've been given, and then we have turned it into evil. And we do it to seize things for ourselves, power, fame, glory, pleasure, etc. We sometimes run away from reading the Old Testament or letting God speak for his own identity from its pages because we see him as big and scary and judgmental. The truth is the characters living with God and living under God in these stories are screaming from the pages. He is good. He is faithful. He is love. We need to listen to them. Psalm 136 says, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 145 says, great is the Lord famous for abundant goodness, gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love, good to all. Do you see how different this God is when we allow him to reveal himself? Is this someone worth trusting? Much of biblical worldview is trusting God is who he says he is, because without this trust, we aren't going to trust his will or way over our own, not at any turn. This question, who does God say he is, when answered biblically instead of by ourselves or by the culture around us, is step one in renewing our minds.
Thank you for listening. Antikinosis is a project for anyone anywhere who is looking to renew their biblical worldview. Next time, we'll ask the question, who does God say that I am?